Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have Little Lost Brain by Dorothy Dunn. The story was originally published in the February 1943 issue of Thrilling Detective. Although a male-dominated field, the hard-boiled mystery pulps did have a few standout female writers. One of those was Dorothy Dunn, who wrote more than 50 stories for the detective pulps, including such standouts as Black Mask and Dime Detective. The story included here, telling a tale of a Christmas murder, was originally published in the February 1943 issue of Thrilling Detective. If you're still in a holiday mood, read more stories like this in our new release from Brick Pickle Media, Deck the Pulps, featuring yuletide tales of murder, mayhem, and adventure. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can get a discounted price of ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Little Lost Brain by Dorothy Dunn. Ever since Fred's murder, there was something the matter with Daphne. Irving Belmont greeted his hostess with a sincere smile and a warm handshake. He was delighted to be here. He meant it. Some men would have found Nadine Holt's dinner parties dull, but Irving was always happy to attend anybody's dinner parties. The food was never an attraction, as he had a delicate stomach that he fed only to combat the discomfort of complete hunger. For the same reason, the drinks were never an attraction either, particularly the martini cocktails that Nadine served, a horrible concoction with an olive bobbing like bait in the bottom of the glass. So many people offered the excuse that they drank them only for the olives. Irving thought the, tr- the trouble involved was too great for the procuring of an olive that one could have speared directly from the briny bottle minus the gin. But he always smiled agreeably at the excuse as though he'd never heard it before. Irving had that faculty of smiling agreeably, no matter what the conversation. But it was a vacuous smile. It was just an interested smile. Being a brain surgeon, he knew perfectly well that people drank martinis because they wanted to escape for a moment before dinner. And he knew that Nadine served them because she wanted her guests to escape, because she was aware that they needed just that. Nadine was a hostess who collected oddly assorted people and tossed them into the social pot carelessly. Her guests were usually ill-matched, like haphazard clumps in a marvelous stew. Irving was delighted to attend Nadine's parties because he enjoyed the flavor of her guests, the tang of home style, mixed with the subtle flavor of obscure spices. Once, Nadine had invited the same party a member of the British consulate and a girl who was a ticket-taker at her neighborhood movie. Irving had enjoyed that night. The British consular representative had knocked himself out for the strawberry blonde, who didn't keep much knowledge in her pretty head beyond the names of next week's features. At the end of Nadine's potent martini marathon, the ticket-taker had emerged victorious, more dignified than the dignitary. The episode had delighted Irving Belmont's macabre sense of humor. Some things he suspected that Nadine was afflicted with a streak of sadism that made her plan and execute these ridiculous human encounters. If so, he had a similar streak. He enjoyed what she planned. Nadine manipulated the strings, and he could always laugh at the puppet show. He really meant it when he smiled at Nadine and told her how happy he was to be at her dinner party. My God, Irving, I don't know why you don't drink. You peck at your food. You know why, darling. One meets such interesting people. Was it tonight? A Russian spy and a girl who works at Oak Ridge? You're quite horrible, Irving, really. You spent so many years at surgery, you don't think of people as human beings. You probably look at every head and see it with skin folded back, ready for that devilishly clever knife of yours. The Miracle Man. Tell me, does that prefrontal lobotomy business really work? Can you cure people of insane notions? Irving laughed, delighted as always at Nadine's lack of subtlety. 
She had something up her sleeve for him, like the time she'd aroused his sympathy for a mate of hers who'd had a brain tumor and couldn't afford the operation. Even Nadine, rich and charitable as she was, couldn't take on the cost of an Irving Belmont operation for her maid. But she had worked him around so it amused him to remove the poor woman's tumor without charge. There's no such thing as an insane notion, Nadine. Fixations, yes. Obsessions. Just answer my question, Irving. I haven't the time for the right words. You know perfectly well what I mean. Does that prefrontal operation do people any good? You know, people who act crazy about certain things. Irving patted her beautiful arm. Don't worry about yourself, darling. Your deviation from the normal pattern of behavior is the greatest contributing factor to your charm. I wouldn't change you for the world. You dog. You know you could answer my unethical medical questions quicker than you could think of a way to dodge them. Would you rather I came and paid for an office call, Irving? Don't be silly, Nadine. Are you being serious? She took a cocktail from the tray that was being passed. Irving declined. Very serious. In fact, I think perhaps I should come to your office. I have this party to look after. Nonsense. In one sentence, what is it? My niece. Daphne Dehaven. You'll see her tonight. Nadine leaned closer, almost whispering. I think she needs that prefrontal thing, that operation on her brain. Dear God, why? How could you as a layman diagnose a thing like this? Really, Nadine, medical science has to probe a little deeper than the articles you read in the popular magazines. I know, but there's something terrible the matter with Daphne. Ever since Fred was murdered, she's been strange about little things. I thought being away at school would help her, but it hasn't. She's worse, much worse. For instance, Nadine, what little things bother her? Fred's room, for one. The room where he died. She keeps talking about it, but she has a morbid fear of the room. She won't cross the threshold. Would you believe it, Irving? She fainted when I tried to insist. Irving remembered Daphne from years back. She had been a gangling adolescent, strangely out of place with her sophisticated aunt and uncle. She's been at school for four years, Nadine. Yeah, she just came home. Was she here when Fred was murdered? It seems to me that it was her at a Christmas holiday. She was here. How can you forget? You were here, too. Sometimes, Irving, I think you try to impress people that you're important and busy. You were in a cold sweat the night that Fred died, and you attended Daphne for two hours. How can you pretend to forget? Irving Belmont smiled. Nadine was striking pretty close to his biggest fault, his self-importance. But his subconscious rebelled against telling how well he remembered the night of Fred's murder. He didn't want to ever know about the nights he'd had to get up and change his pajamas, the nights of cold sweat and pounding blood pressure. He didn't want to know about the dreams he'd had after Fred's funeral. You're right, Nadine, I'm sorry. I remember the whole ghastly night, right down to the smallest detail. You had on a simply cut black gown and looked very lovely. I just couldn't see any reason for you torturing your own mind with memories. Nonsense, you know I don't have that kind of mind. She swallowed her martini and poked at the olive with a beautifully manicured finger. Maybe not, but we don't know what kind of mind Daphne has either. It's a very sick one, I know that much, and I know that I've got to do something to help her. All of her trouble goes back to the night of Fred's murder. Wouldn't the prefrontal operation make her forget that night? It would make her forget a lot of things. She might not end up the same Daphne you know. The operation eliminates mental stress, but it also changes the personality. Would you want that? As I remember, Daphne had a lot of personality. I know, Irving, but the way it is now, she wants release only in death. The operation, no matter how it turned out, would make her forget, would give her peace of mind. More likely peace of mind, said Irving. Half a loaf. A brain with the imagination cut off completely. In Daphne's case, that would be good. All her anxieties are imaginary. You don't understand, Nadine. She could lose all interest and keep herself clean in the refinements that she's grown up with. She could become a dead weight, an embarrassment to you. I just want to help her, to save her from complete insanity. And I have confidence in you. I know your reputation, Irving. You've answered my question. 
the operation made her forget the night that Fred was killed. Irving got excited in spite of his attempted mental discipline. He loved doing a prefrontal. There weren't many men in the country who could execute the operation. Nothing made him feel more important than cutting into a patient's brain. And so many families wouldn't sign over a prefrontal. Many people considered it a form of murder, just as they do abortion. And yet Nadine was willing to sign Daphne over. He wondered why. Surely the slight streak of sadism that he suspected couldn't spread to the proportions of wanting to dabble in the complete change in human personality. Unless she had some reason. Women were complex. Could it be that Nadine hated the young girl and was manipulating the strings in a more serious puppet show than her dinner parties were? But whatever the motive, she was willing to assume the responsibility for the consequences. And best of all, she had the money to provide for the post-operative care. Now that Fred was dead, Nadine had plenty of money. Much more than she would ever need. Irving didn't like what was happening inside of him. As a surgeon, he knew he wouldn't operate unless his diagnosis indicated that prefrontal was the last hope to save Daphne's mind. But he was being excited by the prospect that the operation might be necessary. And Nadine was doing that to him deliberately. Nadine knew how to handle people, and he felt that he was going to be handled. Come to my office at three tomorrow afternoon, Nadine, and bring Daphne. Bless you, Irving. She had got what she wanted. She moved away to another group, and Irving Belmont stood by himself, looking over the guests at one of Nadine's dinner parties. But he was no longer amused. He was worried. He didn't like to think about the night of Fred's murder, and he was afraid that Nadine might be following a devious method to help tell him something about Daphne that she dared not put into plain words. By the time he sat down to the tables, Ulcer was active, and he felt miserable. Daphne D. Haven's mind seemed to have turned so far inward that her eyes reflected meditated horrors more awful than anything she might confront in reality. Her responses to the nurse were hollow sounds, coming after long pauses. She thought for a good while before giving her age as 21, and her eyes darted helplessly about while she was thinking. Irving sat across the room, observing Daphne's responses to the nurse's simple questions. Nadine whispered, Is it as bad as I think, Irving? He gave her a look of professional impatience. I don't know, but you better do some shopping or something. Come back in an hour. I don't want you here when I start talking to her. But Irving... Sorry, I must insist on a private examination. Nadine took overly long, drawing on her gloves and standing up. She was reluctant to leave, but Irving noticed that with her departure, some of the fear seemed to go out of Daphne's eyes. He dismissed the nurse with a nod of his head and went forward slowly, holding out his hand so Daphne could see it before he got to her, so she would know that his approach was friendly, slow, Easy, like an approach to a timid child or a wary animal. Hello, Daphne. I'm Dr. Belmont. Do you remember me? She let him take her hand and looked up at him with large, haunted eyes. Yes, I remember everything that happened. Uncle Fred was there, and you were there. And suddenly, Uncle Fred was dead, and I found him with that, that thing sticking out of his ear. And I didn't know then that somebody had done that to him because there wasn't any blood... She was tumbling the words out rapidly now. This wasn't like trying to remember how old she was. This was the effortless recital of the scene that kept flashing through the gray folds of her brain. This was shock, the result of its confusion. Irving patted her hand. I know, Daphne. I was there, too. And it was a bad night a year ago. You were home for the Christmas holidays. Then you went back to school. You got sick of school, didn't you? Her eyes registered the beginning of her retreat, and Irving prompted her quickly. Did you have a doctor when you got sick of school, Daphne? I... I was sick. Sometimes I was sick. Her lips began to tremble and she blinked her eyes as though tears were near the surface. I know. Let's go over to the light and have a look at you. I'm going to help you get well. You want me to help you, don't you? You couldn't help Uncle Fred, Dr. Belmont. I, I was there and I called you and you didn't do anything to help. I remember just how everything happened. 
I remember the room where he died. Do you remember the room, doctor? The Christmas tree lights were off, and Uncle Fred was dead in a dark room. There was a party going on in the next rooms. I remember Daphne. She was sitting on the end of his examination table. He turned his back to her and opened the door of the cabinet that held his instruments. The rubber mallet slipped out of his hand as he turned around. When he picked it up, he noticed that his palms were slick with sudden moisture. The clammy feeling was on him again. Did he remember the room? Had he noticed the lights had been out on the Christmas tree? Just how many minute details can a sick mind retain? He began his examination automatically, but he didn't call his nurse as he would have done with any other patient. He wanted Daphne to keep talking about the night of Fred's murder. He began testing her reflexes with the mallet, but she stiffened unnaturally against the taps. The room was dark, wasn't it, Daphne? Until I turned on the light, I was looking for Nadine. I remember hunting among the guests for her and then going into Uncle Fred's den, thinking she might be with him. Irving said, drying his palms on the back of his white coat. You didn't see her there, did you? No. She had on a black dress. It was dark in the room. The crystal tree lights had been on, but they were off when I went in. I think the murderer pulled the plug out of the socket so the room would be dark. Don't you? Irving wiped his palms again and put his hands gently on top of her head, his thumb against her eyelid. He leaned close, peering into her haunted eyes with a beam of light. Then he stepped back, frowning. When he spoke, his voice had lost the confident ease of his professional manner. You're going to be all right, Daphne he said, with more sarcasm than he'd intended. But I'd like to talk to the doctor you had at school. Do you remember his name? No. I just remember the night that Uncle Fred was killed. That sharp thing going to his ear and into his brain. Do you suppose that hurt him when it happened, doctor? You know about things like that. Does a person suffer when something sharp goes into the brain? He didn't suffer, Daphne. He didn't even know what anything had happened to him. You're a brain surgeon. I suppose you ought to know. Do you think the murderer will ever be caught? Irving Belmont smiled nervously. The police have given up, I imagine. No clues were found, and it's been a year. Irving wished that Nadine would get back, wished that he'd never sent her away. She was off someplace laughing at him, no doubt. She liked to make fools of people, like those ridiculous parties she gave, the sadistic streak, the cruelty. Daphne raised her eyes to his as the office buzzer sounded. The metallic voice of the nurse came over the intercom. Mrs. Holt is here, doctor. Send her in in five minutes. Daphne leaned over him now, her eyes probing his. He tried to control his facial muscles to stop the twitching. Her voice was firm and confidently low, intimate. A statement for his ears alone. You know about the clue, don't you, Dr. Belmont? You know that I've known all along. And you've known it can't be proved, Daphne. That's why you haven't done anything about it. And your insanity act was good enough to fool a casual observation, but if you want to convince a doctor, don't ever let him look at your eyes or test your reflexes. I can't understand what you hope to gain by the dramatics. Maybe practice. I majored in theater and hoped to get a television show. If you could see yourself, you'd know what I've accomplished. Irving was more tired than he'd ever been in his life, and his weak stomach was pitching on the ways of the ulcer. Did you know that Nadine told me she thought you needed a prefrontal lobotomy? Wonderful woman, Nadine. She's quite an actress herself. You must have been in love with her, Dr. Belmont. That's the only answer I can find. What are you planning to do? Wait the decent interval and then ask her to marry you? Nadine came into the office then and put her arm around Daphne. Have you told him yet, honey? Yes, Nadine, and I'm sure now. 
He gave himself away a dozen times. Look at him, drenched in the sweat of his own conscience. Isn't it a relief, Dr. Belmont? Would you like to talk about it and get rid of the tension? Irving gripped the arms of the desk chair, fighting for control. Nadine was looking at him with loathing. He couldn't stand much more of that. You didn't tell me what your clue was, Daphne, he said, clutching for something, if even a moment of time to think. You know it as well as I do. You saw me staring at your shoulder when you came into the room. You brushed it off your suit. She was right. It would be a relief to relax and stop worrying about it. The snow, he said. The artificial flakes that were sticking to my shoulder. He said it more to himself than to them. He's remembering the way her eyes had stared accusingly at the white flakes that had been so hard to brush off the wool suit with his hand. He had hoped that she had forgotten or never realized their significance. From the bottom branches of the tree, said Daphne. When you leaned down to pull out the cord, it happened. You must have hoped that Uncle Fred wouldn't have been found until after the party. You wanted to lie there in that darkened room. Nadine said, Never mind, Daphne. Irving has admitted his guilt in his own way. That's all that's necessary. There's no point in talking anymore. Daphne began to cry, real tears this time. I'm sorry, Nadine, but I loved Uncle Fred a lot. It seems such a shame that... We both loved him, Nadine reminded her, but it doesn't help to dwell on that. She was looking at Irving as she said this, and he tried to meet the steady gaze of the woman he loved, the one with the sadistic streak. She was trying to tell him something with her eyes, something she didn't want Daphne to know. He understood, but he didn't approve. Her voice was a rustle in his ears, like the sound of swirling black taffeta moving across the room. You're a celebrated surgeon, Irving. You've saved a lot of people from death. There are patients who have confidence in you, and I don't want to shake their faith in the medical profession. Do you know what I mean? One man isn't the medical profession. One foolish man, just a man, not even a doctor at the time. It doesn't make any difference, Nadine. I think it does. It would be easier for you, for all of us. I'm sure you'll see it that way too, Irving. It's a chance to do something for others, to spare them disillusionment, and to protect your sense of self-importance. The sudden anger that he felt toward her was upsetting. Irving was seized with a violent colon pain, but he tried to meet Nadine's smooth smile squarely. I hope you never need a prefrontal darling. I'm one of the few men who could do it. Nadine took Daphne by the arm, sure of herself now, sure of him. Goodbye, Irving. They left. Irving bolts for his nurse. I'm not well. Cancel all my appointments. The ulcer. I'm going home. His pain was evident, was real. His nurse would remember. She would be a supporting factor for the death certificate. Nadine wanted to record it as natural causes. He couldn't blame Nadine too much. After all, he'd always known about her cruelty, had enjoyed it. They are two of a kind. When she'd asked Irving to do something about Fred, so they could have each other, he'd been thrown off balance, thinking she loved him. But he knew now that it had been Fred's money she wanted, and she had played along with Daphne's scheme simply to taunt him, to upset his weak stomach and his wrecked nervous system. And now she'd given the final jerk on her puppet strings. She wanted him to be noble, felt sure that her influence would carry even that far, that she could shape his thoughts just the way she had shaped them for the murder of Fred. Well, maybe she could. If Daphne told her story to the police, it wouldn't convict him, but the notoriety would ruin his practice. Nadine had been using the weapon of mental influence, which is flimsy enough. But with Daphne's story, she had a bayonet to back up her position. The taxi driver said, You look sick, mister. Need help getting upstairs? No, I can manage by myself, thanks. He wondered if he could. There was so much to think about. Nadine was right about his patience, about his own pride. But there was Daphne to consider, too. A bright girl, very bright, very talented. Her act had been superb. Irving hadn't really known that she was acting until he examined her eyes. He hated to leave Daphne in such a vulnerable position, not knowing about the cruel streak in her aunt. 
Halloween up to his apartment, he was weighing Daphne against his own reputation. But the mental exertion was too great. By the time he had opened the door, it gave way completely to the physical pangs of the ulcer. He was sick this time, really sick. He would have to make his decision later. Right now, he couldn't think. Thinking always made the pain worse. If it got any worse than it was, he knew he wouldn't be able to stand it at all. Death would be better. Anything would be better. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Pulp Nostalgia Audio Cast. Hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we'll be back next week with another episode.